welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I've got a really bad cough. So bear with me as I try and get through this. We're going back into the wild for a serendipitous second week of monster hunting. Last week it was Danielle Trasoni and The Ancestor. This week it's Christina Henry and her newest novel, Near the Bone. A wholly different encounter with the things that lurk in the mountains. It's a tale of imprisonment, survival and the horrors that both man and beast can do. As you'll hear me mention, cryptozoology, aka monster hunting or the scientific search for unknown creatures, is having a bit of a moment in fiction currently. Where we used to have monsters or creature features, more and more we're hearing the word cryptid. I'm delighted because the subject has been an obsession of mine for years. I mean, it's coming up more and more in these conversations. But I'm also aware that not everyone is quite so fascinated by the debate over Bigfoot or Mothman or dinosaurs in the Congo. But you, you should look that one up. It's fascinating. So for those of you more normal minded people, I've made sure not to dwell too much on the monster alone. Christina and I talk about her writing habits, which are reassuringly relaxed. We discuss how her love of the outdoors and endurance running informs her fiction. And we even ask whether horror can take place in space. <laughs> if you listen to this episode in months or years to come, that will probably make no sense. But trust me, for about 48 hours on Twitter in the spring of 2021, that question was a big deal. Um... One point to mention before we start, this conversation begins with a few minutes of slightly poor audio. It's only like the first two and a half minutes, so please don't let that put you off. We both get crystal clear and our conversation warms up as we proceed beyond that. So, let's head off to an unnamed mountain in the American wilderness. There are monsters at the top, both human and otherwise. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Christina, and thanks for coming on the show. How do we find you today? Uh, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me. W where in the world are you speaking to us from? I'm in Chicago, in Illinois, in, in the middle of the United States. I'm kind of slowly colonizing the, U the US city by city. You may be my second Chicagoan, so welcome. Thank you. I don't know what the weather is like where you are. The calendar tells us that spring has sprung here in the UK, but we're actually spending the week in the grip of a freeze and it's snowing as I speak, all of which weirdly makes it the perfect backdrop to read and discuss your new novel, Near the Bone, set as it is on a freezing mountaintop. This is your second, I think, individual and outright horror story in a row following last year's The Ghost Tree. Both, I'm delighted to say, involve monsters, but in Near the Bone, monstrousness and monstrosity becomes quite complicated and it can be found, arguably, in several places. Can you set us up with a summary of the novel before we kick off? Um, yeah, so I'll just try to explain briefly because I don't want to give away too many spoilers. Um... The book is about a woman named Maddie who lives in total isolation in a cabin on a mountaintop with her husband, William. Uh, William is quite a bit older than her, and um, he's quite controlling. 
And Maddie has these mm, thoughts, she thinks, dreams um, of a different life, but William says that they're not real, so therefore they're not real. He basically is sort of the the whole sun that she orbits around. Um, and uh, one day she goes out to check. They have these traps, like these snares in the woods to catch rabbits. And she goes out to check them and she finds a dead fox in the woods. And she realizes there's something else in the woods with them. And um, the arrival of this creature also means uh, that there are some people following behind and all of these elements come into conflict very quickly. Okay, so suddenly the sound is better. We had some minor technical glitches there, which we've now resolved and reconciled, I believe. Um, So that was a very kind of straight to the point, pithy and necessarily ambiguous synopsis of the novel, because despite being relatively short, there is a a lot packed into this story. I I feel quite guilty because I, the other day, recommended your book to somebody on Twitter who was asking for um, a perfect camping or cabin read. And I actually used <laughs> the phrase, um, read near the bone, it's fun horror. And then it, <laughs> then it dawned on me that there's actually quite a lot of, you know, once you get beyond the creature on the mountain, there's quite a lot of really dark human drama at play and I was like god that's it's going to look weird that I've called this fun I got a bit too fixated on the monster but it's always good to kick off with a question really of where what what was the genesis of the idea for near the bone well all of the books that I write um they pretty much come from either a question that I have or like an image that I have in my head so um this came the first thing that I saw for this um, was this woman finding the fox in the snow. And, you know, a lot of times I see these little flashes and then I end up writing the book so I can find out who this person is. That's how the girl in red happened. Like I saw a woman wearing a red hood holding an ax and I was like, who's that? Let me write a book and find out. Um, that's, that's pretty much my process. Like I write so I can discover the story. And did you like what you discovered? Well, I mean, it was a little funny for you to say that it was fun because I don't think anyone's accused me of being a fun writer in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not since I wrote Alice, I think. Um, I am always interested in characters. I'm not so much interested in plots. Um, Like the plots of my books kind of come from the characters and the characters' actions and kind of who they are. I don't really think about plot so much as I think about people. Well, yeah, actually, when I think about it, this isn't so much a novel that is driven by plot, so much a situation, really. Mm-hmm. It's not the kind of thing where C follows B follows A. It's much more there. these people are thrust into this static, horrendous situation, and they have to survive it, and then the human drama becomes another, another hinge upon which all of that turns. And the reason I described it as fun is because, one, I love monsters. And I'm going to mm-hmm. ask you lots about monsters as we as we go along in this conversation. I love monsters. And th- there are two kinds of horror novel that really, really 
draw my attention that I, I want to read just on synopsis alone. And that's either the the huge 80s style Stephen King epic with dozens of main characters and it's a thousand pages long. I love that. And I also love the kind of tight, pared down double hander of something like, well, when I come to think of it, something like Stephen King again, like Misery. Now, Near the Bone is very much the latter of that. And it's a really necessarily fast paced thriller as much as it is a monster story. Yeah, I mean, and so much of what happens in the book is driven by the character's decisions. You know, there's some decisions that are made by characters at the beginning of the book that impact the actions of the remainder of the book. Without those choices, there wouldn't necessarily be the fight for survival and everything else that happens later, you know. I just like to see what people do in situations and then, you know, you kind of see what what unfolds. Well, before we get into the novel itself, sort of a quick question about your career, actually, because I know all of your work has been horror inflected to some degree or another. Mm -hmm. But whereas something like the Black Wings novels are... I mean, I'll admit I haven't read those books, so forgive me if I get this wrong. They appear to be much more in the vein of sort of dark fantasy romance. They're not romance. Um, they're considered urban fantasy. But yeah, they were. it was an urban fantasy series about an agent of death that was set in Chicago. And it was a seven-book series. The series was actually cancelled. <laughs> um, Bastards. So, well, I mean, it happens, you know. It was mildly popular, um, actually, to this day. I still have a lot of people telling me that it was their favorite series, which is always heartening. And weirdly, the books have become super popular in France in the last two years. <laughs> so, you know, you never really know with a series of books. They can always get a second life. Um, but the series was canceled. There was a lot of urban fantasy on the market at the time. Like, there just was too much going on. And it couldn't like break out the way that publishers wanted it to. So um, I had this really vague idea for a kind of Alice in Horrorland novel. And so then I wrote Alice and then I've written, yeah, basically horror novels since then. From Alice onwards and things like Lost Boys and like these riffs and revisions of childhood classics, they almost feel like a genre unto themselves. Whereas your last two novels, I know there was some discussion over whether the ghost tree was YA or not, and I've already talked at length on this show about the problems and, and the rewards of, of YA categorization. But the ghost tree and near the bone, to me at least, feel much more like down the centre, no punches pulled horror novels. And I wonder whether you see them like that. And and, and if you do, what's prompted this this sudden darker tinge to your writing i mean i consider alice a horror novel i don't know if you've read it or not but i definitely consider it a horror novel and i don't consider the process of writing any of my books it's always the same process um i don't really make a distinction between a story that has obvious antecedents like alice or lost boy um or something like ghost tree and near the bone and like for ghost tree um i don't consider it a ya novel 
Um, I consider it a coming of age story the way you would by any male author. And I think that this is something that happens a lot with female authors, where if you write a book that has a younger character, it's automatically kind of put into this YA slot. And then it gives, I don't mean to like get on a soapbox here, but it gives people an opportunity, I think, not to take it as seriously (laughs) as they would a work by a male author, because nobody says it is a is a YA book, even though, you know, more than half the book is a bunch of 12 year old kids. Oh, I completely agree with you. I mean, I've had two conversations about YA prior to this. Um, And we won't, we won't sidetrack this entire chat about YA because I don't think it's YA. But I've had, I've had two conversations, one with Jeremy Robert Johnson, who wrote The Loop, which is a very visceral, no punches pulled horror novel. But there was a lot of talk about whether to market it as YA because it had teenage protagonists. And Jeremy was kind of ambivalent about the entire thing, really sort of said, you know, whoever reads it, as long as they enjoy it, it doesn't matter. Uh, And I interviewed Courtney Summers, who is a ardent defender and proponent of, of YA fiction. And I read her book, The Project, which in many ways redefined for me what YA is. And I think some ways I have a quite a reductive vision of YA. And I think that's my problem more than more than marketing. Um, and I've kind of lost track of my question originally now here. But yeah, to come back to it, <laughs> I don't think Ghost Free is YA. I think Ghost Free is much closer to something like it, actually, which is, you know, they're books about the horrors of childhood. They're not childish books about horror. Yeah. When I am writing a book, I'm not thinking that my intended audience are teenagers. And I think that's ultimately the distinction between YA and adult novels is like your intended audience. And people who write YA, they intend to write YA and they do it well. I don't think I'm a great YA writer. That's not who I'm writing for. Fantasy, sci-fi, horror authors who are female have talked about this before. Um, There was a whole thing going around Twitter a couple of years ago where female authors were saying, you know, our books are sort of consistently, even if they're not placed in the YA section, even if they're not marketed that way, they're sort of classed as YA. And it's very, very frustrating because you want your work to reach the right audience. And again, like, just if you want to think about how much more seriously a work is taken when you call it coming of age versus YA, you know, like coming of age sounds like an important literary term and YA is like, oh, well, YA, that's something that's over there. You know, that's something that's in its own corner. And it's it's just very frustrating thing because you want your work to reach the right audience. Yeah, I can imagine that. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia made a very similar point about the way that her book Mexican Gothic was pigeonholed as YA almost against her will. Um, like I say, I- I've evolved as a reader in my response to YA because Courtney Summers g- gave me a wake-up call on how good YA can be when it's done right. And as you're saying, the people who write this stuff do it really well. My concern is that sometimes it's like trying to have everything at once. And I, I worry that sometimes it has a a mitigating effect on horror because you aren't allowed to go as far as you want to go. You know, you talk about coming of age horror, which is my personal, probably favorite subgenre, if we want to subdivide and subdivide. Um, there's an argument you could make that Near the Bone is in many ways a coming of age novel because we have the protagonist, Matty, who is is only just out of her teens 
and is in the process of the novel finding out all kinds of things about herself. Right. She's an emotionally immature character, even if she, like her years don't say it's coming of age, you know, but she is, in a way, she seems younger than she is because of her circumstances. Well, speaking of those circumstances, one of the things I wondered, actually, because as somebody who's trying to write a novel myself, I'm becoming more and more aware of, of the things that, you know, readers don't necessarily consider in terms of the, the challenges of, of telling a particular story. So I'm, I'm reading lots of books with that in mind. Like, what would be the, the real difficult part of this book? What would be the hard part of this story? And what kept occurring to me with Near the Bone is that you've created this intensely insular novel. And it, it's tight in geography and it's very tight in this small cast of characters you, you play with. But it perhaps where it's most claustrophobic is in the, the lead character, Matty's psychological state. Be- because of her situation, she knows so little of the world and she has no frame of reference for most of the things that, that she encounters or which she hears discussed. She's an almost completely empty vessel. And I wonder whether that posed a great challenge to you as the author. I mean, it does and it doesn't. Um... I made the decision, it actually I didn't make the decision, it just sort of happened, but I think it was the natural thing was to write it in third person, even though it's a very close third, because it gives you that teeny, teeny bit of distance as both the reader and then, you know, for me as the writer, it was the same decision I made when I was writing Alice, because Alice is a very, very dark book about a sexual assault survivor and like you have to stay in her head for the duration of the book and if it's too close if it's an i instead of a an alice or a maddie um it could be very very painful to sort of really inhabit that character in that way but just by writing it in third gives me that little bit of distance even if i'm staying close to her point of view so that i can you know, just have a little emotional space for myself when I'm writing the character. But you also don't want to shy away from it. My biggest thing always when I'm writing a character like Maddie or like Alice is that I feel I have to be emotionally true to their experiences. You know, there are people who experience these things in real life and I don't want it to feel false and I don't want it to feel like washed over. In terms of emotional truth, obviously, I haven't lived this experience, but it, it certainly felt authentic in the way that you, you don't portray this woman as somebody who suddenly has an epiphany and becomes an action hero. You know, she's hampered by her by her situation throughout the entire novel until the very end. Every step towards freedom is a metaphorical step as well as a literal step. But it's very true to a trauma survivor's mentality, I imagine, in that she is she's she's never free. Did you do much research for this in terms of th- th- this kind of strange power dynamic and the psychology that 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 plays a part in in these kind of weird relationships? No, I didn't do any research at all. <laughs> I never do any research. I'm terrible. Um, See, I find that fascinating, though, because I interviewed Will Dean for his novel, The Last Thing to Burn, um, a few months ago. And I don't know if you've read that novel, but if, if if you haven't, I recommend it. And that similarly features a man and a 
a woman in captivity in a secluded location. And he did no research either. And I just think it's it's quite astonishing that both of you reached quite similar treatments of people in that situation. Because it'd be so easy if it would become exploitative or or hysterical. I mean, I think that obviously, yes, every character you write is a little bit of yourself in the sense that it came from your psyche. But as a writer, you know, you're essentially imagining someone else's life. And I think that if you're halfway decent at what you do, you approach that life, that fictional life with empathy. And I think if you approach it with empathy, then you can come to that truth, even if you haven't gone and you know, done research. I think it really depends on the writer. Some people don't feel comfortable unless they've sort of enmeshed themselves in uh, outside information. But I'm the kind of writer who, once I start writing, I don't want anything to interfere with the story. So I don't do any research. I just kind of keep driving forward. I, I'm terrified about getting something wrong, I think. So I think I, I get myself bogged down in over-researching and then it becomes a stultifying process you know again like everybody's process is different and writing is so intensely personal because so many people have just have different ways of doing it but like I said for me I like to discover the story as I go so I write it chronologically I don't plot I just sort of start writing and see what happens and I like to discover the story the way a reader would and I only do I say like one and a half drafts because I usually do a light edit like once the book is done, but that's pretty much it. But I know a lot of writers who don't feel that way. Like they like to do a lot of research and they like to do multiple drafts and they don't feel secure unless they've sort of been through the material a lot of times. So it really just depends on what you're comfortable with. I think it's the old thing, like like you get in acting as well, the the old story about, um, I think it's, Ollie Reed, who came on stage once saying he got drunk because he wanted to play a drunken person. He was put his acting alongside Laurence Olivier. And Laurence Olivier just went, my dear boy, just act. And it's probably a yeah. similar <laughs> thing, you know. Right? The, the Daniel Day-Lewis's amongst us are off there reading all of Wikipedia so they can write something, whereas other people just imagine it. Um, I'm fascinated by this idea of you having an image and then writing the novel to discover what's going on. So what came first? when you were picturing this and working out, what came first, the the monster or Matty's particular situation? Matty. I mean, because everything always comes from character for me. So like Matty was first and, you know, it was really that I wanted to know who she was and why she was there and um, why she was having these particular thoughts in her head. She has a memory she thinks of dancing with another little girl and um i just wanted to know who she was and why she was having these thoughts and um yeah it everything always comes from character for me okay so where did the monster creep in then because it would be a terrifying novel without it yeah, I mean, the monster was there because there was a dead fox in the woods. And then, like, <laughs> you know, it's this is, you know, what I mean. Like, it just sort of happens. I, I don't really think about it in a super conscious way. Whenever I say this, it makes it sound magical. But it's not magical. It's really just um, that I'm a very lazy writer and I let my subconscious do a ton of the work for me. So that when I sit down to write, it just kind of comes out. And it keeps the process very fresh for me so that 
a lot of times I'm just as surprised as you are. If you've read the book and you're surprised by something, I promise you, I was probably surprised too. Okay, so this is now a three-part interview then, because I've got you and your your subconscious to talk to. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've got some questions to ask that, by the sound of things, you may not have ready answers <laughs> for, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I'm definitely seeing things in this book that, that I am adamant are there, whether you say they are, they are or not. You know, for example, for example, mm-hmm. even though you never once articulate it fully there does seem to be throughout the story this this running comparison between William mm-hmm. Matty's monstrous for want of a better mm-hmm. word husband and th- this this creature on the mountain yep so um, was that intentional at least you know to put those two in parallel not in the way that you would think it is. okay I mean I you know I know that stuff comes out when I'm writing but I'm not I'm genuinely not thinking about it I'm genuinely not thinking oh let me compare x to y you know because again I'm always thinking about motivations so the monster in this book has motivations you kind of learn a little bit about them at the very end of the story so I think of the monster as a character so the monster is driven by character motivations in the same way that William is in the same way that Maddie is in the same way, like the three strangers that come to the mountain are. So like everybody behaves according to their personal motivation. And then everybody makes choices based on that, which then affect the outcome of the story. So I'm not necessarily thinking, um, let me compare this and this. I'm just thinking, okay, this is the motivation of this character in this moment. And sometimes that character is a monster. I mean, that I, I believe you, but that is so serendipitous then because the, the thematic rightness of that is just present and correct. You know, you've got, you've got a monstrous human figure and you've got a monster outside and, and they, their behaviours and their impact on Matty start to dovetail. Um, and it, so your subconscious is basically doing a lot of heavy lifting then. It is totally because like I said, I mean, I'm not joking. I am kind of lazy. Like I just want to sit down and write for a little while and then go away and do something else. Like I don't want to (laughs) be thinking about plot stuff all day. Um, But I do, I I think just a lot of my personal habits facilitate that pan bubbling on the back of my head. You know, I'm a long distance runner. I like to also like to take long walks. I like to just kind of walk around the house with my headphones in and listen to music and do nothing in particular. And I think it's really important because a lot of beginning writers think, oh, I must write. This is the most important thing. But I would say the most important thing is to give yourself time to like let your imagination develop. You know, you're not, it's not like a muscle you're trying to force all the time, you know, like you're trying to force yourself to lift a weight just kind of let things like simmer and develop and the flavors meld and then it it feels less like effort I mean at least for me so do you kind of ascribe to the you must write every day ethos or not oh god no no I probably write at the beginning of a book I might write three or four days a week um, usually when I get closer to the end and I'm really in the thick of the story, I write five days a week, but I always take a couple of days off. I always give myself 
like time and space, unless I really feel compelled, you know, but um, I also believe in sort of stopping at a, like in the middle of a scene, which um, was a habit I got into accidentally when I first started writing because my son was two years old and my writing time was limited to his nap time. So whenever he woke up, that was when I was done writing. But I found like stopping in the middle of the scene just gives you such an easy starting spot, you know, when you get going again, because you're in the middle of something. You haven't come to like the end of a section and now you're thinking, oh, well, what do I need to do next? Yeah. Yeah, I get that entirely. Is writing your full-time job? Is this what you you do? Yeah. Um, And I also... Live in the dream then. (laughs) Well, I mean... I've been doing this for 10 years and I've been lucky enough to have moderate success. So um, my books are really very popular in Europe, (laughs) which has been such a surprise to me. I'm like way more well-known in the UK and like Germany and (laughs) France than I am here and Russia, apparently very popular in Russia, Um, Poland. (laughs) Well, it helps that you've got, you're published by Titan in the UK as well, because they do amazing covers. Mm-hmm. No one does t- uh, covers like Titan. They make everyone's book immediately 10% more more readable <laughs> just by looking so great. But Russia's an interesting one. Yeah, it's very weird, but the books are popular there. Um, it's been such a surprise to me. Um, Alice was actually a a bestseller in Germany. I've never made a bestseller list in any other country, but I made the bestseller list in Germany. Um, so I've been lucky because I've had, like I said, sort of moderate success and like I have enough of a fan base to keep going. So I feel very fortunate. Oh, excellent. Going back to monsters, because you're not going off the hook mm-hmm. that quickly, because I, I haven't had a chance to talk about monsters for so long because they seem to have gone a bit out of fashion. Um, and then just last week, I spoke to Danielle Trasoni about mm-hmm. her novel, The Ancestor, which... Yep, I read that book last year. It's great. Yeah. I really liked it. I, I really liked it. And, it, you know, it deals headlong with the subject of cryptozoology. Uh, in a few weeks, I've got Max Brooks on the show talking about Devolution, which is his, like, Bigfoot horror found footage novel. I've been, a, like, a cryptozoology and mystery nerd for years, and, and people listening to this podcast will know I keep mentioning it, but that's because it keeps rearing its head in fiction. It's like it's suddenly having its moment. Um, and and your character, Matty, meets a group of cryptid hunters on this mountain. Mm-hmm. And I, I wondered, I've always been immersed in this weird stuff, but as I say, it's having its day. How did you come to that? How did you come to the, the idea of having these people be monster hunters rather than just having happenstance where they come across this creature? Well, part of it was this idea that William has gone to such lengths to isolate them. Um, It felt unlikely that they would sort of encounter somebody randomly and that, you know, the people being there would be for this very specific reason that that was sort of the, the idea behind that, that they wouldn't just be like random hikers, you know, that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. It just seemed like they would that they would have um, that they would have a purpose again because William has gone to such lengths to make sure that nobody comes near that cabin. That seemed the, to me the most logical way for them to be there. I think it's just cool that this fringe 
pseudoscience is suddenly creeping into the zeitgeist a little bit. And, and I wonder if Discovery Channel mockumentaries and, and YouTube vids and stuff have changed the way that we think about monsters. I mean, probably not for me personally, but um, I would say more than anything, in a sense, my inspiration for Monster Hunters is more like Scooby-Doo than like any sort of real life cryptozoologists. Um, but yeah, I do think that, you know, I think because of the internet, a lot of things that might have been dismissed out of hand or people would have sort of been in their own little isolated interest. Now, you know, people can like sort of join up and get to know other people who have the same interests and so many other things like cryptozoology is kind of a fandom and like people find their fandoms on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the last cool thing about having it be cryptid hunters is that they, they come to this situation with some degree of knowledge, um, mm-hmm. which is useful, actually, because them knowing what certain folkloric creatures are supposed to look like is one of the only clues we have to understanding what your creature is. Because I went in assuming, because if it's a mountain setting, I went in thinking, OK, it's Bigfoot. And then... At one point, I did wonder if it was a werewolf. But actually, it's much more ambiguous than that. And we only know kind of what it is by them knowing what it isn't. Because mm-hmm. at one point, it's just dismissed. You know, that, that, that they Even they say, oh, we thought it was going to be Bigfoot, presumably meaning that it isn't. You're so keen to keep any real vision of this monster obscured. Why? Why so ambiguous? Um, number one, I love Jaws. That's like my favorite movie. And um, the best part of Jaws is when you don't see the the shark, right? It's so much scarier, I think, to not see something fully in the light. Um, because your imagination is like 20,000 times more scary, scary than anything you're going to see on screen. I always had this sense that the characters and therefore the reader would see the monster just flashes of it. They would see parts of it or they would see it in shadow or they would just have a sense of its size, but they would never get a clear look at it. And that I think that lets your imagination create something that's so much more powerful than anything I could create. I like to leave a little imaginative space for my readers too. That's like a big thing that I like to do. I like to leave a little space for the reader to fill in. It's kind of like the Lovecraft approach, except I, I'm a great believer that Lovecraft did it because he wasn't a good enough writer to actually describe the things he wanted to describe. So he just went, <laughs> oh, yeah, it would send you mad if you saw it, you know. I um... Yeah, there's always that point in the book where it's like there was this unbelievable sense of not being able to describe what you are seeing, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like you're not quite the job, HP. It's funny you mentioned Jaws because what I've picked up on this, just doing this show for six months is how many horror novelists of kind of our generation have that as their favourite movie. It, it seems to be one of like the urtexts for everyone who is writing horror in their 30s or 40s. It's such a perfectly proportioned film so the suspenseful parts are very suspenseful the characters are really well drawn you know you have three amazing actors in these parts that are like that have perfect chemistry 
perfect chemistry. You couldn't like buy that kind of chemistry no. between three actors. And um, just amazing dialogue. There's so many things that work really well about it. Um, I think it's just a very well-balanced movie. And I've watched that movie, I don't know, 200 times. But every time I discover something more wonderful about it than I've discovered before. I think it may be the first scary film I ever saw. I remember watching it with my gran, and I genuinely remember it coming on. I think I'd have been about six. I, I remember this feeling of thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to be scared now. And it was the first time I'd ever willfully sat myself down for something that I knew was going to scare me. I think it was mm -hmm. Jaws anyway. Yeah, it's a bit of a, I suppose it is a bit of a primal text in, in, in its way. Um, I mean, the, the point you make about keeping the monster obscured, heightening the fear, definitely true. The, the film that I think of in, in those terms is always Alien. Mm -hmm. it, that film is terrifying up to and climaxing in John Hurt's chest bursting open. And then from, mm -hmm. from then on, it's not so much diminishing returns, but it's no longer a horror film. It's a, you know, it's an action film or a science fiction film coming to an end but that the first half of that the first hour is is pure terror because it is all shadow and chiaroscuro and you, you don't know what you're looking at actually speaking of which have you been on twitter in the last 24 hours no oh have you so you, you've not been privy to the whole meltdown about how horror can't take place in space oh my gosh this is so ridiculous. It's gone Nobody's crazy. Nobody's ever seen Event Horizon. I mean... <laughs> a, a journalist who I, I won't name because it seems mean, because by the time this goes to air, she, she'll probably put, put the controversy behind her. Um, <laughs> yeah, she simply put up a poll asking if Alien was a horror movie. And when it got at 94% yes, she wrote... And I think she meant it in jest, to be honest. I think she meant to be a bit flippant. She just wrote, my argument, horror can't take place in space. But then, like... The horror community as is just on fire. Like I can't believe how viral this thing has gone. Uh, and everyone, like what you just said is everyone's rebuttal is. So you're telling me you haven't seen Event Horizon? <laughs> That's the first thing I thought of. Yeah. You know, but but Alien is a horror movie because it functions like a like a haunted house film. Yes. Okay. And it's a, an enclosed space. They can't escape. And you're talking about after the chestburster comes out. Well, now it's a slasher movie, right? They're being hunted down and picked off. That is a much better way to describe it than that. Yeah, it's a slash. It, it goes from a, from a haunted house movie to a slasher movie. That's much cleverer. Yeah. It's a very, very clearly a horror movie. I mean, I don't know, man. The body count alone would tell me yeah. that it's a horror film. But, you know, I... I can't stand these kind of pedantic discussions like is this horror is that horror i mean a couple years ago i was actually i had my feelings hurt by a, a horror author that i really respected who said that he didn't think what i wrote was horror i was kind of like okay <laughs> like right. I, you know it, it, it's like well i think it is and you know the only time i've ever been nominated for any kinds of award considerations have been in the horror category but okay you don't think i'm a horror writer thanks for telling me i'm not in your club i hate these kinds of i don't get the point of the conversation i mean yeah. i'm a great believer in the whole like theory of death of the author really that you know it, it what the reader decides a book is 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 what it is um well it's yeah because, that's true i mean the scariest book i've read i think in the last year 
Um, the one that caused me the most physical disquiet is a book by Ruman Alam called uh, Leave the World Behind, which is tangentially a horror novel. I mean, it, it's kind of like a, dy a dystopian psycho thriller, you know, um, scared the life out of me just because of, of, of its implications for humanity in crisis. And reading it during COVID, in the furnace of COVID, I was like, wow, this is this is really doing a number on me. But I don't think even he would consider it a horror novel. So I, I don't really get the point of the conversation. And I certainly don't get the point of someone else telling you what your books are. Yeah, and it happens you know, probably more often than you think. But, you know, the thing that you have to remember is like these categorizations, a lot of times they are just marketing categories. Like yeah, there are ways yeah. to try to like make the book reach its audience. Um, but I think, you know, yes, I agree. Like ultimately the reader kind of decides what a book is to them. But when I sit down to write, you know, if I think it's a horror story, then to me, it's a horror story, whether or not like another author thinks it is or not. But I agree with you like that to some extent, like you're going to find horror in unexpected places. The most disturbing book that I read in the last year was Earthlings by Sayaka Murata, um, which was has this like cute, cute cover. <laughs> And you're like, oh, this is going to be like Convenience Store Woman, which is another one of her books, which was translated into English. And it's so very much not like Convenience Store Woman. It's one of the most disturbing books I've ever read in my life, especially once you reach the climax and you're just like, whoa, this book took a left turn into crazy town. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's you know, you kind of find horror in unexpected places, but I just don't think there's any value in saying like, this is this and that is that, like, what is the point of it? Except that to an extent you need these categorizations for things like best of lists and awards and whatever, you know, it's like the year's best horror novel. So you have to decide like, this is a horror novel and put it in that box. But we can agree that horror can mm -hmm. take place in space. I definitely think horror can take place <laughs> yeah. in space. And underwater and in the air and, you know, wherever else you want it to be. It can take place wherever. Well, fantastic segue back to my, my final few questions, actually. Because, yeah, horror can take place anywhere. In, in your novel, it takes place on a mountain, largely either in a cabin or out in nature. And mm -hmm. my favourite part of, of this book is your the way you write nature because i was really really impressed with how you managed to take the same landscape by your choice of verb completely alters whether that outside world is a welcoming or forbidding place so you talk about birds chittering and chattering and, and at one point you say squirrels watch the bumbling humans paths and it all sounds really friendly and and this wholesome idea of of nature and then the the creature appears and, and this literal silence falls over the story everything flips and the same scene is just suddenly dark and scary and it got me wondering and, and you've mentioned you're a runner but have you written this novel from a perspective of fear or of wonder at nature and the wilder parts of the world well i mean i i do a lot of hiking and camping and i have like through my whole life and i when I was a kid and I grew up in upstate New York, there's 
woods near my house. I remember spending a lot of time in the woods. And there's something I, I actually was joking with somebody recently about how I have an obsession with, you know, something in the woods because they, several of my books have featured <laughs> bad things happening in the woods. And I think because because that is what you experience in nature. Um, there's a sense that it's beautiful. It is welcoming. You can feel like you're really a part of the world in a way that you can't in an urban environment. But at the same time, like there are, at least in the States, there are bears and there are <laughs> snakes and there are mountain lions. Um, you know, there are things that can hurt you or even just a bad step off of, you know, a very tight cliff edge. When I go hiking, I always approach it with um, a sense of humility. And um, I think that when I write, I'm always thinking about that too, that um, that nature is beautiful, but it can turn on you. Well, kind of like a third string to the horror in this, because you've got, as we said, William and the monster. The third strand is the, the perils of nature itself and and what humans have to go through to survive because in, in some ways it's a kind of miniature story of endurance and i think that one of the one of the true horrors in real human experience that that books plumb really well is the idea of have of, of like needing to go on beyond the point of exhaustion and it's something that's done brilliantly and has haunted me in something like dan simmons is the terror or kings the long walk where you're in a kind of mobile prison you you have to keep going you touch on that as i say in in, in near the bone was any of that drawn from your experience of, of distance running oh yeah i mean if, i've run five marathons and i can tell you that after a while you're just like yeah i just would like to lie down here i don't know why i spent the last six months training for this <laughs> this yeah. is the dumbest idea i've ever had and i think that every single time i marathon and yet i keep going back and doing more of them that's one thing, you know, I think it can be hard to imagine completely if you've never experienced mm -hmm. it. Because most people don't p push themselves to their physical limits. Um, and even, you know, marathoning, obviously, that's a very, that's a relatively safe way to push yourself to your physical limit, right? There's people all around, there's water everywhere, you know, you're not like at risk of getting poisoned from eating the wrong thing or from drinking from a stream that's infected with bacteria that can kill you. Um, I, I think that um, a lot of people don't necessarily think about, you know, what would happen if I was in XYZ situation, but I am the kind of person who's always thinking about the worst case scenario. So I don't know if you, if you ever saw my hiking pack, like just to go out for a day hike, I'm always like prepared for the possibility that I might end up like having to sleep on the trail, you know? <laughs> well, I do know. Cause I mean, I, I'm a long distance runner myself. Um, like I'm part of a, a running club in where I live. So just going to say a big shout out to Ramsbottom running club because they're good people. <laughs> yeah. And I, <laughs> I spent most of lockdown in the summer where me and my mates in groups of six would just go off into the hills for like long runs. And there is something about that feeling of confronting your limits and knowing you have to keep going. And that's just to finish a race or to get home for your dinner. Right. But 
something about having to do it to survive. I think it's one of the most primal terrors we can really experience, that sense of having no choice. Uh, yeah, I, th- I just think it's something that comes across quite well in this when they're just trying to get off this mountain and they're exhausted and they just got to keep going. Yeah, and I think it does like create an extra element because you you have to think about your physical survival in more than one dimension. You know, not just a monster chasing you, but also like, can we get down this mountain if someone's injured? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or like, can we, do we have enough food to last for X amount of time or, you know, whatever. So yeah, it does add an extra element. Have you ever had a weird or scary experience yourself in the outdoors? Um, not especially. I feel like, again, like, because I've always gone out with this sense of caution, um, even when we've been out hiking out west, hiking, you know, I've been lucky, but I'm just a very sort of careful planner, especially when our son was young, because he lives in the city and he's, um, he's sort of used to, he'd be used to like, say, running ahead of us. Yeah. And when we went out, certain places hiking out west like you can't run ahead of us because (laughs) you are small and because there could be coyotes you know or mountain lions and they will look for like the weakest element right or like it's not uncommon most of the time if a bear hears you it will go away but people have encountered bears you go around a corner and there it is you know it's like you do not want your six-year-old to go around a corner and see a bear so yeah um you know i feel like i've always kind of approached things with a lot of caution and planning and um sort of like worst case scenario disaster planning never kind of faced infuriated bigfoot then in the pacific northwest no i saw an otter i saw a sea otter <laughs> that's that cooler cool. than bigfoot yeah i did think it was cooler than bigfoot and my friend was actually i had a friend who lived out there and he was like i've lived here for five years and i've never seen a sea otter <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing i i was one of the, the schmucks who stumbled across a bear in canada when i was i wasn't even out hiking i was i was about a mile from the center of town on this trail were you by yourself no with my wife and we turned a corner and she just went that's a bear and it was a, bear, yep. a black bear and its cub, which is what scared me. Yep. Um, and we just slowly backed away and got the bear spray and then, and then, and then fled. Um, yep. But it was and weird because is... I was really terrified up until then. And my wife was not scared at all. And then when we saw the creature, I immediately in the moment stopped being scared. And my wife mm-hmm. did it, be- became terrified. So... Yeah, we had a bit, of a, a bit of a role reversal. But as I always say to people in North America, they don't get why British people are scared. Over here in the UK, our apex predator is a badger. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. everything scares us. Yeah. Anyway. that's uh, But you did the right thing because that is what you're supposed to do if you see a bear. Back yeah. away slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you see the mother with the cubs. Do not approach. Indeed. And if you listen to this, that can be the lesson for today. I could save a life one day. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I've taken enough of your time. So I'm going to ask you my last four questions, um, if that's okay. Rapid fire ones I ask each guest. So I'll fire off with, what was your gateway to horror? Um, so like many, many people, it was Stephen King, but not necessarily in the way you think it was. 
Um, so I was a huge uh, fantasy reader, pretty much solely fantasy, until I was about 13. And uh, Stephen King wrote a book called The Eyes of the Dragon, which is a fantasy novel. And um, I, my parents bought it for my birthday, and I really, really liked it. And I thought, okay, so he's not so bad. He's not actually scary. <laughs> and um, so then I got Christine out of the library. And I remember staying up until one in the morning, like unable, literally unable to put the book down. You know, my heart racing, but um, just uh, completely in love. Yeah. I read Christine again recently. It's an awful book, but I remember loving it as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I was quite young when I read it. I don't know. Sometimes you don't necessarily want to go back and have another look. You want to keep that feeling that you had. Yeah. Eyes of the Dragon. I mean, if anything proves your point about YA, these days, that is an absolute bang dead sense of YA novel. But because it's King, no, no one would dream of calling it that. Mm -hmm. If you could recommend one book to my listeners, what would it be and why? Um, the Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. That is one of my favorite books of all time. I haven't read it. Oh, well, please let me recommend to you that you read it because it's fantastic. This is the one that's kind of like an alternative zombie story, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think now, because it's now sort of floated around the media and it got made into a film, so people kind of know what it's about. But when you first start reading it, it's not really clear what's going on. Right. Um, and I love that feeling. That's my one of my favorite feelings as a, a reader and even as a writer is to not really have a clear sense of what's happening um so it kind of keeps you going and it has just a really compelling main character so i, I highly recommend that book excellent that's a new one that's not been on the list before so i will add that to the show notes question three now i've read other interviews with you and i know you hate this question so i apologize but i asked everyone <laughs> it so i can't make exceptions what piece of advice would you give to a newbie wannabe writer yeah, I'm not crazy about it because I feel like, like I said, writing so personal and so much of it is about kind of working out what works for you and people can get a little caught up in like prescriptions and, you know, feel like, oh, I have to do X, Y, Z in order to be a writer. But I would say my general advice is what I said earlier, give yourself some space to think and imagine and breathe and not necessarily think directly about your story um, and let your, you know, let yourself relax a little bit so that you don't feel like you're always um, fighting so hard for the story. That's a nice answer. That's quite a different answer as well. I'm actually scrapping that question. I'm going to change up the questions and I'm, I'm only asking you because I've asked somebody else who's going to air after you. So for continuity reasons, I've got to do up until then. Um, but I am scrapping that question because it got a bit samey same, but that's a very different answer. So thank you very much. And also it's one that will really help me kind of relax a little bit. So, yeah. <laughs> Last question. What truly scares you? Um, I would say that like in real life, I'm scared of spiders. I am. Yeah. There's quite a few... Uh, of monsters that have appeared in my books that are sort of spider-shaped. I do not like them. They are alien. I, I used to be really scared, but I've, I've gotten over it a little bit. Are you still firmly terrified? 
only because I've traveled to other countries. Like I was in Australia last year, and I'll tell you, they have some of the scariest spiders oh. I've ever seen. So it, it's literally a continental landmass. I don't think I can go to as much as I want to. <laughs> I think I just turn up paranoid. <laughs> I mean. You know, it's crazy because, like, every animal is poisonous and trying to kill you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine landing there as a, a convict back in the day with no warning. It's like, what is this place? <laughs> what are these spiders that can eat mammals? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I need more Australian uh, more Australian authors to, to grill about this. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll leave you with, Christina. Um because we've talked about cryptids and we've talked about monsters and you don't like spiders, I will let you go away and Google the creature known as Jabbar Fofi, which uh... is an African cryptid myth, folkloric creature, whatever you want to call it, which is essentially a spider with a six-foot leg span, which is known in the Congo or in Cameroon, I think, to steal children from villages. Oh, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you, uh, that is my parting gift to you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, anyway, listen, thank you very much for your time. Um, I felt we've covered a lot of stuff there and I appreciate it. And yeah, Near the Bone is out, am I right, April 13th? Yes, April 13th. So everyone go and read it. It's a really fast-paced read that is about more dark stuff than I may have led people to believe on Twitter. So yeah, everyone read it. But Christina... Thank you very much for talking scared. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, wow. It is hard doing these outros with a bad chest. Um, right. I don't know about you guys, but to me, that felt like a conversation that warmed up noticeably as we went along. At first, it felt like Christina was holding herself back a little bit, as if she was more comfortable talking in the abstract than about her own work. Thankfully, we had that whole horror in space debacle to finally shatter the ice. And, I mean, really, how much is that person regretting that tweet now? I know it's a few weeks back by the time you hear this, but, yeah, I'm recording it kind of fresh from the from the furore, so to speak, and wow, what a take. At first, I leapt her defence, really. I, I found some of the responses from the horror community a bit too mean and unnecessary for what is, after all, only an opinion, if a stupid one. But then, the more I thought about it, the more I, I did come to realise how often horror writers are left at the mercy of journalists who are almost eager to stress that they aren't fans of the genre, or they don't know the genre, before then going on to write a thousand-word think piece of ill-informed bollocks. So yeah, eventually I opted out and I let the wolves have their feast, and Ellen Datlow went in hard. I have learned not to piss that lady off. Wow. Christina's own reaction spoke volumes about that kind of lazy commentary and categorization, and it seemed to really kickstart our conversation. But that's a shame because her reticence to discuss her own work is an unnecessary humility. Near the Bone is a rapid-fire horror novel of the type that they used to write, in quotation marks. But it's got a spin that gives it a nice edge in an era of awareness around evil and toxic masculinity. I was surprised to hear what she said about barely editing her work, as the novel is, is pretty tight. 
it actually reads much more like a novella in pace and kind of taut focus. Personally, I could have done with more fleshing out of the creature. I wanted to know a little of what it was and where it had come from. I agree there is great value in keeping the horrors hidden, but I'm a sucker for a long, elaborate mythology. I mean, you can decide for yourself when you read Near the Bone. It's out now from Titan Books. Speaking of books coming out now, constant listeners will have heard my interview with Will Dean about his novel The Last Thing to Burn, and it's worth mentioning again for two reasons. One, it shares much with Christina's novel, as I mentioned to Christina. It's a novel that's similarly about a relationship between prisoner and her keeper. Second, it's now being published in North America, yesterday, April 20th. Get your hands on a copy immediately. It's without a doubt the best book of the year so far. I can't imagine it not being in my top 10 list come Christmas. It's one of the most memorable, finely tuned, perfectly pitched thrillers I've ever read. That's my shilling for Will Dean. Get your hands on The Last Thing to Burn. We discussed a few other books this week, and as ever, they're in the show notes. I haven't read Christina's recommendation, The Girl with All the Gifts, but I do want to, and I'd love to get M.R. Carey on the show in the future. He has a novel called Fellside, which is, is just great, and it went far too underappreciated. I would also recommend you all go back and read Roman Alarm's Leave the World Behind, if you haven't already. I had the pleasure of interviewing Roman last year for the show, and he was a wonderful guest, as chatty and warm as his novel is cold and bleak. Pick the book up. It, it may make for slightly easier reading as the pandemic begins to wane in at least some of the world. Because, as I said to Christina, it's the book that freaked me out the most last year. Beyond that, we also talked about Stephen King, Christina and Eyes the Dragon in particular. I mean, we talk about King every week. I'm so interested in how often he lies at the root of this generation of horror writers. As I mentioned, I'm going to retire those questions that I ask each week, because let's face it, we're getting pretty similar answers now. It's always Stephen King. Um, I may just decide to ask everyone what their favourite Stephen King book is. Eventually, through attrition or sheer bending of the universe to my will, I will get Cy King on the show. And I know his favourite book already. It's, it's Lisa's story, which is frankly a baffling choice. Yeah, I'm coming for you, Stephen. I'm going to get Joe Hill on here because I love his stuff. And I want to ask him to have a word with his dad and then have a big family thing where we sit around at Thanksgiving talking about the King Joe Hill multiverse. Beyond that, all that's left this week is to invite you all to get in touch. It's TalkScaredPod on Twitter, it's TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com or it's TalkingScaredPod on Instagram. I'm sorry the Twitter handle is slightly different, I can't remember anything about it. Some arse is sitting on on what I want and not using it, what can I do? But I do want to hear from you. The handful of emails I get each week are literally a highlight and I want more. Tell me anything. Tell me your favourite King novel. What are you scared of? Do you believe in Bigfoot? Anything at all. It's just good to hear from other people in the horror community. And, of course, the weekly begging for reviews. Please do leave your thoughts on Apple Podcast or iTunes. They're essential to building this show into something bigger, better, and something that can perpetuate itself financially. On that subject, I'll have more to say next week, 
about the potential of a Patreon account for this show and the extra content I could offer. I'm still adding out the last few kinks and thinking how I can best use the platform to boost the show and give you guys the best possible perks. So listen out for that next week when, drumroll please, our guest will be none other than mega sci-fi eco-horror god Jeff Vandermeer. Honestly, I set this show up as a little hobby and a way to get my nerd on, and now I'm talking to Jeff Vandermeer, to Tanara Reeve Du, to Josh Malaman. It's mad. But yeah, definitely check that out next week. But until then, avoid dead foxes, tread lightly in the snow, and for God's sake, think before you tweet. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>